0: Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that uh, by it and through it, we we come to the living stone and we are living stones being built up as your people, your house. We pray, God, that you would conform us to Jesus, that we would see him, that we would trust him, that we would come to him. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. How do we define ourselves? Where do we go to identify ourselves to answer the question, who am I? You know, so often it's our careers. It's the things that we have excelled at, where we have found honor. It can often be our virtues. It is what we do. In the uh, movie, The Dark Knight, Not the recent Batman, the earlier and better one. Um, The character Bruce Wayne heard a comment that he later expresses as the Batman. He says, It's not what's underneath, it's what you do that defines the person. And that so much sums up our culture. It's what we do that defines us, and related to that, it can so often be the approval and the acclaim and the recognition of others for our work, for our accomplishments. My son, Miles, and his wife, Lily, had um, been working on a little house that was like a, a modular building house in Boise, Idaho. They, they bought it for, for fairly uh, a low amount, and they, he's a builder now, and he, he's in construction, and he... He worked around the clock on it and put a ton of time into it and they beautified it. It looked great. And they put it on the market and they shared that Zillow um, app with us or or the website and they said two hearts. (laughs) And then a few hours later somebody in our family commented ten hearts. You see, we can look at the hearts. We can look at the likes and say that's what gives me validation. That's how I define myself. By the way, they sold the house two days ago. Yeah. But I think also in our culture, even 15 years after that quote I gave you, or 10 years, we are shifting more and more toward what one feels to define us. Authentically expressing ourselves, being true to our sense of the core being of who we are, That is now the norm. And our culture is actually pressuring us to look underneath and find who we are there. And of course, one of the problems with defining ourselves based on our feelings is that this can be so chaotic and unstable. Self-determination is not something that's ultimately solid. Or it's like, you know, peeling the onion, and you keep going through the layers, and you find eventually at the core, there's no there there. To quote another superhero movie, The Incredibles, the young boy, Buddy, who ends up being the villain, says, everyone's always telling you to be true to yourself, but they never say which part of yourself to be true to. There's no stability there, no solidness there. But I think stepping back, all of us as human beings, more fundamentally and basically, we all tend to define ourselves by whom we are closest to. Our closest friends, our families. And First Peter picks up on that reality and says, in Jesus Christ you have a new family identity. You identify You are identified so closely with Jesus, so connected with Him that you find your identity in Him. In other words, whose we are defines who we are. It's not about looking inward. It's about looking to Christ and knowing that whose we are defines who we are. Now this is a rich passage that we find here, and what we're going to do here is look at two major themes, but really they're closely uh, related. We can just almost take this as one long theme. But the first is verses 4 to 8, and we'll call that God identifies us by his plan for Jesus. God identifies us by his plan for Jesus. And then in verses 9 to 10, God identifies us as his people in Jesus. Again, very, very similar, but the first part talks a little more about Jesus. Now, how are we related to Christ is the central concern in this letter. Peter has been saying that Christian exiles are exiles because of our love relationship with Jesus, and the world does not accept that but we are accepted by Him. The theologian Ed Clowney once wrote, the status of Christians depends upon the status of Christ. And so, dear friends, it's not what you do. It's not what is underneath how you feel that defines you. It is what Jesus has done for you. For me, that defines you, that defines us. Peter says, You have come to him. Now, initially and right off the bat, that's a lovely phrase of approaching God, of approaching worship. It takes up the idea of temple worship, where the people would come to that place of mediation and meet God there. But now it's not a physical temple, Peter is saying. It is the person of Jesus, he is the temple. And so this corresponds with Hebrews 10, where it says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have the confidence to enter the holy places, that is, heaven itself, by the blood of Jesus, through the new and living way that he opened for us, that is, through the flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, Let us draw near. So Peter is saying the same thing. Draw near. And Peter takes up different strands and different themes of the Old Testament story, and now he's applying them to these Gentile Christians. He's saying the story of Israel is yours. And folks, this was revolutionary. These were what are often called pagans. They worshipped the gods of the sun, the rocks, the sea. They worshipped all sorts of false gods. But now Peter is saying, you have come to the God of Israel, the God of heaven and earth, your God. And he's saying the same to us. Again, picking up on the Old Testament imagery, he says that you have come to the living stone, Who was rejected by man, but is and was precious to God. He was like diamonds or rubies or sapphires. And it's so important that that foundational stone was just right, or the whole building that God was setting out to build would have been compromised, would have been crooked. And so Peter says that Isaiah 28 has been fulfilled. That main stone, that foundational center stone, is sound and true, and therefore the rest of the temple will be sound and true. But there's more to that story. Peter says that though Jesus was cast aside by the rulers, by by the powers that be, by so many. Those builders did not want him. But God says, Peter says, despite themselves, God used their rejection to put the very cornerstone in place. So God flipped the tables in the person of Jesus. Peter refers to Psalm 119 that that through His death and His resurrection, Jesus became not only the cornerstone, but the chief stone, the capstone, that holds together the entire structure of God's building. And because Jesus was raised from the dead, He's not an inert stone. He is the living stone. He is the centerpiece of the sanctuary, the very temple of God he is the the centerpiece and the cornerstone of our entry into heaven and Peter says he is our sanctuary for us who love him he is our only place of shelter and then he also says for those who don't love him they will be shattered upon Jesus as a rock of offense, But if you do believe in Him, if you have based your life on Him, Peter draws from the Old Testament and says, you're not a, not a people who will ultimately face shame, but you have been honored by God. Because you are joined to the cornerstone, the precious stone, the living stone. But there's more to it. Peter says, in verse 5, that you yourselves are also like living stones, being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. He says later in verse 9, you are a royal priesthood. You are meant to offer spiritual sacrifices to God. Now you see, when people have a, a unique relationship to a king... That royalty in the family defines them. And so our unique relationship to King Jesus defines who we are, and we are holy priests, royal priests. Now, that's such an interesting idea, a little foreign to us. We're certainly not priests in the way that Jesus is. He is the one final high priest who offered himself as a holy sacrifice to take away our sins and to usher us into the presence of God. But that's not the only meaning of a priest. A priest is one who serves in the house of God. And so Peter is saying that we serve the Lord through the living stone, through Jesus. And what is it that we as royal priests are to offer? Well, friends, it's our very lives. It's our very lives. And hasn't this been Peter's point all along? He said at the very beginning of the letter that the Lord has sanctified us, that we are called by the Father's electing purposes. We have been sprinkled by the blood of the Lamb. Chapter 1, verse 2 says, for obedience to Jesus Christ. For obedience to Jesus Christ and so God has redeemed us to know him to praise him to serve him and to serve others to build up his church because we are all connected as living stones to the living stone and so i want to ask you this morning as i've been asking myself this week and it's a challenging question what What more can we as priests, what can we give to Jesus? And let's remember that we answer this not to earn an entrance, not to gain our approval or our identity or to define ourselves. We do this, we serve, we give more and more because He has already given everything to us. So perhaps this means giving more of your relationships, but also your way of relating. (laughs) And not saying, well, this is just the way I am. This is my personality quirk. It's the way I'm hardwired. No, no, no. You have been redeemed and fit together with the living stone. Perhaps it means being more intentional to pray for for non-believers that are at this point stumbling over the rock of offense. fence. I've been privy to a conversation uh, this week along those lines and seeing intense resistance to the Christian, to the biblical worldview. Intense. But we are to keep praying for people who are stumbling and at this point falling down over the rock of offense. We want them to come to the living stone. We don't want them to be eternally shamed. We don't want them to perish. We pray for them, and we don't give up. And we courageously share and lovingly share Jesus. Being a priest may mean that you serve the body of Christ more, Today we're going to install uh, a deacon who was already ordained. And a deacon means a servant, but friends, you are all servants. And part of the point that Peter is making here is that your personal relationship with Jesus, my personal relationship with Jesus, they are always embedded, always in our relationship to the family of God, to the temple of God, to the people of God, the church. He's building us into this spiritual dwelling that He wants to be a part of and central to. He wants to dwell in us by His Spirit, and He does. So consider this week how you can be a priest of God in the way that you serve, a royal priest who gives all that you have because Christ has given all to you. And so that's the look at verses forty-eight. I want to now look at verses 9 to 10 that, that God identifies us so intimately as His people in Christ. Peter talks about the shame that people come to when they stumble over the rock of offense. They are... Sadly, in the end, if they reject Christ, they will be shattered upon him. But then he says, but you are a chosen race. Now again, Peter is taking all of these Old Testament terminologies and he is applying them to the people who have come to Christ, many of whom were pagans who had absolutely nothing to do with the story, the true story of Israel. But now they do. Now we do. Ephesians 1 says, God has chosen you, the Father has chosen you in Christ before (laughs) the foundation of the world. Before you were born. Before you even had a thought of Him. Jesus says in John 15, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And we could elaborate on that fairly. We choose him because he chooses us in love. It's because of God's prior love that we have been drawn in, that we have approached God, that we are considered living stones. There's a passage from Deuteronomy 7 that that we love in this church that we quote uh, from time to time. And I want to quote it to you from the New Living Translation that captures it, I think in a fresh way. God said to his people, you are a holy people, a set apart people who belong to the Lord your God. Of all the people on earth, the Lord your God has chosen you to be his own special treasure. Special treasure. And the Lord did not set his heart on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other nations. That you were, uh, for you were the smallest of all nations. Rather, it was simply that the Lord loves you. And he was keeping the oath that he has sworn to your ancestors. Love, prior love, and a sworn oath. None of that is based on what we do, on how we feel inside, on what our friends and families and society and our jobs say about us. It is the love of God that he puts on us simply because he loves us. And Peter is taking that language of the old covenant and he's drilling it down he is surrounding our hearts with it. He elaborates and says that we are a people of God's own possession. Friends, it means that you you are God's beloved own. You belong to him in body and in soul. Now 10 years down the road and on your deathbed. Peter picks up the language of Hosea when he says in verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Now let me explain that a bit. God told the prophet Hosea, we call him one of the minor prophets, but it's a major message. The book is a little shorter than some, but... God told Hosea, and it was quite an object lesson, to go and marry a prostitute. Her name was Gomer. And he did this because he wanted to show the prophet his own, that is, God's own faithfulness to his faithless people that he loves despite his people wandering. And so... Gomer had two children, and about her second kid, Hosea was to call him, not my people, which in Hebrew is lo ruhamah. "Below" lo is not, ruhamah is people. And so God, in this very interesting way that I, I don't advise any of us to do, <laughs> um, was treating not only these children as Children that he loved, but he wanted to give them an object lesson. He said, "Call your son, the second child, Lo Ruhamah." But then God, very quickly, says, "I will redeem Israel, despite her faithless ways, despite her whoring, and going after false lovers. I will bring her back, and so you will call this second child." This son, Ruhama, my people. And what a beautiful thing that is. Peter is applying it to us. We who were not a people are now God's people. You see, friends, w- without Jesus Christ, we are alienated. We have no place to go, we have no ultimate people to belong to. Sure, we have our families but those will also disintegrate and die in the end. And 100, 200 years from now, most people won't remember our family as it's constituted right now. Without Jesus Christ, we are dispossessed, we are rootless, and we are rudderless. You see, self-definition and self-determination Ultimately unravel and implode. There's a a French thinker, a French intellectual. I don't know if that is a descriptor or if it comes to you as a warning label. (laughs) Uh, I'm mostly French. So a French thinker, his name is Pascal Bruckner. And somebody named Pascal, you really have to listen, tune in. He said about modern individualism, and that's the time that we're in the the thought process that we're dealing with. He said that in this mindset, guided only by the lantern of his own understanding, the individual in the modern age loses all assurance of place, all order, and all definition. He's absolutely right. When we follow again our own lantern, our own feelings, our own looking within, we lose the assurance of place, order, and definition. But God says to us, using the prophet Hosea and that object lesson, you who were not a people because of your sin, because of trying to live your life in your own way, you are now my people of people from my possession, and I love you so much. Now, what a statement this is. It means, friends, that you belong to God. You belong to God if you are in Christ. It means that every gospel-believing community, not just this one, but certainly this one, it means that we all belong to God. And this is a radically wonderful message for the world. The historian, uh, sort of early antiquity um, historian and early church history, Rodney Stark, um, he may still teach at Baylor University, but he has written about um, what Christianity introduced into the brutal, heartless, dog-eat-dog pagan world especially the Roman Empire. He talked about how in the Roman Empire, people who didn't have power or wealth or status, in other words, non-powerful Roman men, he said that the dispossessed, the oppressed, were given dignity, women especially. They were given more choices in marriage. Babies that were discarded, were given dignity and love and homes. The poor and handicapped were cared for. Rodney Stark said, what Christianity gave to its converts was nothing less than their humanity. And secular people take this for granted, but this is a Christian principle that was built into the West by the gospel. And I thought of this principle a few months ago when Liz and I were uh, driving in Hollywood. We went to see a play, Hamilton. (laughs) And I wanted to go by my home church, Hollywood Presbyterian Church, which is in the very heart of the city of Hollywood, off Gower, off the Hollywood Freeway. I spent a ton of time there as a kid all the way through college. And as some of you know, L.A. has gone through some changes, and it was tough to drive around the, the large perimeter of the church. It, it was heartbreaking, because there wasn't one area of sidewalk that wasn't a, a homeless encampment, with tents everywhere, trash everywhere. It was heartbreaking. And, and I actually thought to myself, I'm glad my 94-year-old mother is not walking, as she always did, from the parking lot, Um, to to the church now this is a sensitive issue and I want to recognize that there are zoning issues policing issues mental health drug issues crime issues effective compassion issues but I want to think about the picture that dystopian picture of all those homeless encampments around the church and the trash that was on the steps leading up to the main doors. I want to think about this all spiritually and symbolically in terms of our passage this morning. You see, those lost, hurting, and dispossessed people, they may be feeling drawn to the message of Christ there. I believe the church has a, has a, um, a ministry to the homeless, but again, I want to take that a little further than, there, than that. You see, on the steps of the front door, and it actually just dawned on me this week, on the very corner at the steps, there's a big marble stone that says the foundation for this church was laid, and I believe it was in 1922, it may have been earlier, it may have been 1909. It's the cornerstone of the whole church. But the cornerstone is Jesus. And perhaps those dispossessed, those hurting people feel a draw to the living stone there. And above that cornerstone, if you look up, there is a soaring tower at the top of which is a cross, Christ is the capstone. And friends, I want to say to all of us here in Will to do Orange County, that we would all be spiritually homeless, broken, shattered, messed up. And in many ways, we still are. We would be lost, homeless, if it weren't for the chief cornerstone who was lifted up on the cross and who was then raised to conquer death. You see, Peter is saying to the broken and to the hurting that you are all aliens, but you are brought in. Enemies are made friends. And you are given your very humanity along with others who come to Christ, who may not look like you, who may not have your background, who may not have your well-to-do family tree. All in Christ come to the healing of the living stone. You see, once we didn't have an identity as a people, but now we are God's people. And once again, Peter picks up on the the imagery of Hosea, but this time it's Hosea's daughter, (laughs) who is also to be named as an object lesson. God said, call her no mercy, but then you will call call her mercy because I will bring back Israel. And Peter is applying that to us. You who receive no mercy, and this culture, friends, has no mercy. We are in a cycle of pagan rage where there's a recurring payback of one group toward another. It is all throughout the news. But Jesus says, Peter says to us, you who had no mercy in this world, you have mercy in Christ. And so friends, this self-worth is... Rooted not in anything that we have done, because anything that we have done will crumble, but it is rooted in Christ. And there's one last image that I want to give to you that Peter draws out. It's in the middle of these verses. God called you out of darkness. Now let's think about that theme for a moment. Liz and I, years ago, when we were at our previous church, we were high school camp counselors at a camp in Toyon Bay over on Catalina Island. And one of the features of this camp is they had this little shack or house that that was sort of nondescript, but it was a maze. You go in, and you had to crawl, and everything was padded, but it was this advanced, very complex maze. It had teeter-tottering floors. It had trap doors. It had, um, you know, you weren't always sure where to go. And it was pitch black. And Liz went in there, and she does not like claustrophobic places. Um, She's jumped out of an airplane, but she doesn't want to have, (laughs) be inside in a closed space. And she was very, very pregnant, crawling on her belly. So she went in like four feet and said, get me out. And she backed out. And I thought of this maze going inside into dark places. And for people like me, it was fun, and I finally found my way out. But when you think of life that way, the the pleasure of indulging in sin is not ultimately fun. It ruins people. And being trapped in self-determination and finding our own identities is a kind of self-imprisonment. But Peter says, God has called you out of that maze into His marvelous light. He has called you to Jesus Christ. And He has done so so that you might proclaim His excellencies. I want to put this all together with a story that some of you heard years ago. And it's a sensitive one, but I think it ties together so much of what Peter is talking about. It's the story of a man named Jim Pokta, or Pokta. And he describes, he's in his probably late 50s now, or his early 60s, but he describes... Uh, growing up and not feeling like the other boys um, in his city. He had six sisters, and he enjoyed dressing up as they did. He always felt that he was different. And he went through a lot of bullying. He says that his earthly father uh, was a tough kind of bully type and rejected him. Uh, and so he plunged himself, not for years, but for decades, in um, the homosexual community, the trans community. He moved to San Diego. He, he lived quite a life for, for decades. Part of his story is he got married, but it, the faking it until you make it wasn't working, and his marriage really began to unravel. He had three sons, has three sons, And I believe it's when he was in San Diego, and he was at the end of his rope, and he wanted to end his life. Um, He began to sense, uh, and he had become a Christian at one point, but it really wasn't sticking. But as he reached the end of his rope, the Lord met him. The Lord actually met him through the mercy of his wife, uh, who, who... came into the room when he was about to kill himself. And this man who was experiencing no mercy experienced the mercy of Jesus Christ. His life began to change around, and this is what he said. He said, I repented, and I was able to love Linda as the man I was designed to be. He said, and this was about five years ago, I now get to be a real father to my three sons. And he said, I can rejoice in my story today because Jesus' fingerprints are on every page. I can embrace my story because I have been embraced by the author of my story through all this brokenness. He's a counselor now. He, he counsels others in Dallas and he's actually an elder in a church in our denomination there. He says, to now get to go to my counseling office each morning and watch our Savior mend wounded hearts is joy inexpressible and full of glory. That's 1 Peter chapter 1. God in Christ in different ways. Not everyone has that kind of story, obviously, but God brings us all into His marvelous light to the light of the world so that we all, friends, might know that the author is writing our stories and that we might proclaim His excellencies. Let's pray. Father, we ask that You would work in our hearts, in our lives, that we would know at the very core um, that we are not like an onion trying to peel down to find out who we are or how to identify ourselves. But you have done that for us in Christ. It is not what we do that defines us. It is what Christ has done. We thank you that the priests has made us royal priests, a holy nation, that you've chosen us in your love. You have chosen us who are unlovely, who are not a people, and you have made us your beloved people. God, in this world where there is no mercy, you have claimed us and given us your mercy. You have brought us out of the dark maze of our own self-determination and brought us into the light. And God, we all have different stories than the one of this man at the end here, but we thank you for his example that he who felt no mercy, who felt like an outsider and rejected and even alienated from himself, he has come back to you. And God, I pray that we would dedicate every part of ourselves to you because you have given us your Son. And we ask that we would follow him in obedience, that we would know that we are living stones attached to the living stone. And Father, as we come to your supper, we pray that you would nourish us in Jesus, strengthen us for the journey. And help us to live in a way that proclaims your excellent, marvelous grace. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.